0: Hello, and welcome to the Power Your Advice podcast brought to you by Advisorpedia. In this series, we interview innovators from across the financial services industry to help you understand who they are, what they do, and why that matters to you and your clients. And now, please join your host, Doug Hykenen. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Commercial real estate is actually the foundation of your community, from your favorite coffee shop to your doctor's office, your gym it's all around you. And the health of CRE is important to our economy. Today, we welcome back Ian Formigley, who's the chief investment officer at CrowdStreet to talk about everything commercial real estate. Welcome back, Ian.
1: Thanks, Doug. It's a pleasure to be back on the podcast.
0: Since we last spoke in January, has the outlook for investing in real estate changed?
1: And if so, how? It's interesting question, and I'd say from what we've seen so far this year, the outlook hasn't materially changed. In essence, I'd say it is mostly kind of bouncing along uh, at values that we roughly saw at the beginning of the year. Um, but just to provide some context to that, uh, for example, we track Green Street's commercial property price index. They're a you know industry leading provider of third party data for the commercial real estate industry, and what we've seen is that overall. Pricing is still down roughly 15% from the peak, peak being March of 2022. Uh, if you unpack that a little bit, you'll see that the apartment sector is down 21%, industrial down 13%, office is down 25%, but I think there's probably more pressure there to come, lodging down 4%. Now, if we look at CPPI year to date, so since since January, since we last spoke, apartments are down a little bit more, just under 1%. But now you're starting to actually see a couple of of separate sectors start to increase in value. Industrial is actually up about 2.5% year-to-date, hospitality up just over 1% year-to-date. Office is still going down. Now it's down almost 10% year-to-date, and retail is trending a little bit down, but kind of flat, down 2% uh, uh, year-to-date overall. And I, I think one of the big takeaways so far from this year is the reduced transaction volume. And so, for example, we look at RCA, again, a different provider of data, but one that tracks uh, overall transaction volume quarter by, quarter by quarter. And what we saw in Q1 of 2023 was about $85 billion of total transaction volume across all asset classes. That was down 56% year over year. And to put that number into perspective, the last time that we had lower total transaction volume in a quarter, that was Q3 of 2020. So, just, you know, we're still in the depths of a pandemic. And that's the last time this volume looked like that. And that was 78 billion. So, lower than this quarter. And if you want to step back and say, well, what, when, when did we have this low of transaction volume in a, in a non pandemic period? Well, then you're going to go all the way back to Q2 of 2013. So, I think from a big picture perspective, volume is as low as we've seen it in a non pandemic period in a decade.
0: So there are some commercial real estate headwinds, insurance interest rates, tightening lending practices, but you haven't seen a large pullback on some of the prices across across the sectors that many people expected. Why do you think that
1: is? That's an interesting question. I think there's a few reasons behind that. Uh, For starters, I would say that overall price discovery is down. I mean, given that lower total transaction volume that I just referenced, there just hasn't been enough market clearing activity to, to definitively say, this is this is the trough and we're on to the next cycle. Uh, my personal take is that we're somewhere bouncing along the bottom of the real estate market, whether or not there's more downside. I think that now gets into the question of, do we actually see a recession materialize later this year? But what we're seeing today is that bid-ask spreads are still relatively wide for the most part. In essence, Buyers are looking for bargains and they're looking for lower pricing that the sellers are mostly unwilling to give. So we all know interest rates are are extremely high relative to where they were a year ago. And so if you have a property that's pretty good and it's operating well, you're not really a seller, you're a holder. And so that's what's causing, I think, that bid-ask spread to stay high, why we're seeing that lower volume, why we're, we're seeing kind of essentially pricing now kind of, like I said, just kind of bumping along at this current rate, slightly down, slight mostly flat. And I think at this point in the cycle, a lot of what is expected, I think is mostly priced in and whether or not there's more bad news on the horizon, that's kind of the unknown unknowns. I think that's what the market is kind of bracing for and wondering, um, but at this point, if a deal is getting done, it's getting a done, getting done on the idea that interest rates are more or less where they are they're not probably going much higher. They're probably not going lower in the near term. And so I think we've kind of reached this lower level that's kind of flatlined, you know, bearing, you know, kind of dependent upon new information potentially introduced later this year.
0: What are some sectors that you're bullish on and maybe some that you're bearish on as well?
1: Sure. Well, I think there's a few that I'm bullish on, probably one I'm bearish on and one I'm neutral on. So I'll kind of just go through in order. So I'd say in order of, Bullishness, so to speak. Uh, I'd start off with retail. And one of the reasons I'm I'm bullish on that sector is you you see a sector with relatively no new supply. I think less than 1% of total stock is under construction right now. You've got declining vacancy rates. So essentially, occupancy has bumped up in the recent, you know, over the last year. And we're seeing rent growth that's about as strong as it's been in a while. And to me, the retail sector is kind of continuing to demonstrate its resiliency coming out of the pandemic it more or less got you know knocked down pretty hard along with hotels and it's it's actually showing a really nice recovery in this kind of post pandemic getting out and getting back to doing things uh, from there I'd say industrial actually looks pretty good to us we've seen some cap rate expansion so I guess I think you know values are more I think sane kind of rational than they were you know kind of leading up into the pandemic where pricing was really reaching a point of perfection. Uh, We are continuing to see consistent rent growth, stable occupancy levels with both rent growth and occupancy levels expected to remain strong in the years ahead, and we're seeing tapering supply. so I think the industrial sector continues to set up pretty well for the next few years. From there, I go to hospitality. Uh, That sector has fundamentals that continue to improve from, from a macro perspective. It's essentially on its continued path of recovery out of the pandemic, we track uh, a metric which is called REVPAR, that is revenue per available room. That essentially takes the daily rate of the hotel sector or a hotel, multiplies it by that uh, an occupancy rate to get an, a dollar amount. To give some context, REVPAR nationwide at the end of April was $104, while the pre-pandemic peak in July and of 2019 was $99. So what we would assess here is that the sector has fully recovered on a nominal basis, and it still has some recovery ahead of it on a real basis. Um, it's fair to say that this sector does face the possibility of some slowdown in its recovery. You know, given that scenario that a recession actually does materialize later this year, that could negatively affect the sector to some degree and kind of dampen that recovery. Uh, fourth is multifamily. I think it's fair to note that in that sector there is a decent amount of new supply that the nation is digesting. Essentially, we have. You know, Over the last year or so, we're delivering multifamily at rates that haven't been seen for multiple decades. So supply is up. The expectation is for vacancy to go up in exchange. But uh, rent growth is still in place, just not nearly at the rate of what we saw in 2021. And it's continued. The outlook is for positive rent growth over the next few years. And then kind of the final point about multifamily is it's down like I said 21% since peak. So it's on sale. So and it it is a asset class that is ubiquitous and kind of that's the it fits the box of everybody needs a place to live at the end of the day. Uh, so I think that that from our from our perspective is a little bit market by market um but overall I think that multifamily sits in a, in a reasonable spot. Uh, If we say bearish, you know, I'm going to go with office. Uh, I personally believe there is more downward pressure on pricing that I think that we have to digest. I think that's really a function of the maturities of office debt that are continuing to occur. Off the top of my head, I want to say that there's roughly about $130 billion worth of office debt that's going to continue to mature over this year and through the course of next year. And the market is going to have to digest that. And in essence, what we are seeing is that as these loans are maturing, the current value as you know, the estimated current value of these assets are not stacking up to the amount of the debt. So I think the office sector needs to go through kind of a full flushing out of you know of repricing that will occur. It has to kind of continue to figure out what it's going to look and feel like. You know, in a post-pandemic environment with hybrid work being kind of a more stabilized thing now, um, overall, I, I think that the, the I mean, I'm, I ultimately turn kind of bullish again, I'd say years out on office, but I think that you, you got to expect over the next year or two that more downward pressure on pricing is going to occur before it kind of sorts itself out. And then finally, I would say that from kind of a neutral standpoint, I would say self storage. It's something that CrowdStreet has done uh, over the course of the last few years. We've had, you know, the sectors had an amazing run, and we've historically been very bullish on self storage. In the current rate in the current market, I'd say that cap rates have compressed a lot. Supply is beginning to tick up for the sector. Um, i do think the sector still has long-term trends of institutionalization ahead of it which are generally good for the asset class and good for investing in it um, but i would i would characterize self-storage as kind of a case by case right now dependent upon whether or not that particular asset fits you know the right amount of supply per you know available square footage per capita perspective um so that's kind of what i, I guess rounding it up that's how i look at the different various asset class right now
0: Do the bankruptcies of some major retail chains hurt the general perception of the CRE industry, or do you think they offer opportunity?
1: Uh, This has been such a fascinating question because I think that if if you ask the general perception of people out there about the retail sector they're going to give you an answer that was largely indicative of the retail sector leading up and up and into the pandemic. In essence, you know, it's dying. Amazon is eating the world. Uh, Why do we need brick and mortar retail? Brick and mortar retail is not, you know, uh, it's, it's essentially not it's under demolished instead of oversupplied. So, you know, but what we now see is we we see a, a, a different. I mean, if you look at the reality of what retail looks like now, uh, it's pretty markedly different than what it looked like in 2018. I mean, from a big picture perspective, we saw that the the asset class peak in 2014. One data point that I think is fascinating to point out is if you go back and look at um the, the commercial property price index at Green Street, which I referenced a minute ago, and you were to ask and say, ask the question, what what was the highest valued asset class in 2014? It would be malls. So in under a decade, malls have gone from the top of the stack to the bottom of the stack, so to speak. But when we look into retail, now we're actually seeing, well, well, what's really happening out there? And there's some different groups that track this data. And what's interesting is that if you look in 2023, the National Retail Federation is tracking over 2,700 new store openings, compared to about 1800 closings. So we've lived in a world up until and through the pandemic where the expectation was there was more store closures than store openings, we've actually flipped. And so that kind of goes back to my thesis a minute ago on retail is that we've got no new supply. We actually have more store openings than store closings. And that's a phenomenon that hasn't been around since 2017. And so now we're actually even seeing that retail sales are growing there the expectation is they'll grow between 4 and 6%, you know, this year over last year. That's reaching over 5 trillion dollars now. And so, you know, the fundamentals in the retail sector are generally there. Again, I think it is it is more kind of specific and nuanced within the sector. I'm not necessarily bullish on malls, but I am bullish on, you know, that grocery anchored center, the one that's highly relevant to our daily life. And the the final kicker on retail, I think, is that if you look at it in the context of today, given that it went through that massive period of disruption during the pandemic, if there was retailers and specific tenants that were going to fail leading up into the pandemic, they did, they failed during the pandemic. There was just no way to survive if you were teetering on the edge. So coming out of the pandemic, if you've made it to May of 2023, are you really going out of business in... January of 2024, some, but on the on you know, on you the average, I'd say the answer is no, you're probably doing okay. And so when we look at a retail shopping center right now, for example, if we can see sales that are in place and there's a trend behind those sales that look like they're growing year over year, you can have, I think, more confidence in that center today than you did in 2018. 2018 was a period where you had to keep guessing who was the next retailer to fail. And today, I think you're asking... Is there a new re- retailer that's going to come and open? And this is very different for the sector. So it, it's just interesting to, to, to note that I do think that the banner headlines are overall kind of negative uh, when the underlying real what's happening at the street is actually pretty decently positive.
0: There's a huge stockpile of cash out there. I think I heard $7 trillion last week. What do you think will motivate people to get off the sidelines and invest?
1: Yeah. So yes, totally agree. There's a lot of dry powder out there. Uh, you know, we if we if we kind of pack it all the way down into like what's focused on, you know, the United States or North America. I'd say today it's in the three hundred billion dollar range or so. Um, but that's up. It continues to grow. And you know, even anecdotally, you look at a group like Blackstone who just raised over thirty billion dollars in a real estate fund. That's their largest ever. You know, that particular group is looking to deploy their money into things like logistics and rental housing, hospitality and lab office and data centers. But the reason I bring up Blackstone is I think that they're probably pretty indicative of the overall market in that they've raised the money. They're patiently waiting for these buy signals. and They're not rushing haphazardly into the market. And so I think Blackstone's stance is is fairly emblematic. I think of how a lot of smart commercial real estate investors are approaching the current market. So that's there, and they're looking to to potentially get off the sidelines. But yeah, to your point, what are they looking for? I think a few things. One, you know, compelling situations. Commercial real estate is a highly inefficient market. It's Something I talk a lot about repeatedly and in, in multiple modalities. And re- transactions in the commercial real estate industry they hinge on a lot of factors that are unique to like one buyer and one seller. Things like. The expiration of their debt, the seller's liquidity, the investment thesis of a particular seller and buyer. So I think one thing is that in today's market to get off the sidelines is look for those factors to go forcefully into the favor of the buyer, right? Are we getting a, a strong discount? Is there what we call quote unquote blood in the water? That's the kind of deal flow that you're seeing getting done. Um, the, the second is now, you know, a lot around debt. Uh, given the interest rate environment, everything that's happened over the course of the last year, where we currently sit, and where we go in the future, if you're getting off the sidelines right now, it's the it's the fact that you found your way into a particular deal. So this is kind of the some of the needle in the haystack kind of stuff that occurs out there in terms of can you find your way into debt that makes sense in today's nonsensical debt market. And so what that really translates to is a lot of times it's it's loan assumptions. Uh, It is the ability to have a seller provide financing at below market rates. So in essence, what I would say is a lot of creativity offered by the the deal itself or the seller coming to the table to really get creative with that buyer to structure the deal. Um, So, you know, I I think that's the, and then the final thing is, you know, then the blanket statement is, I think everybody is looking for, a quarter or two of no interest rate hikes. And so from that bigger picture Fed policy perspective, you know, the market has been waiting for essentially kind of the knife to stop falling, so to speak, on the interest rate environments, see some flatlining, see some some basis, and then say, is there a possibility of a lower interest rate in the future? And if the odds start to tip into favor of lower interest rates, and I think one thing you can look at is you can look at the Chatham curve is something, for example, that we track Regularly, and the Chatham curve has just changed, and that's a that's a curve that tracks forward-looking variable rate interest rates. And while that was still like rising, you know, three or four or five months ago, you'd look at the Chatham curve and it looked like it was still peaking. It's now mostly now showing it, what it feels like now. The data is saying, hey, we're mostly at peak. The expectation is they think rates are coming down. The markets, I think, still a little bit like show me, I don't believe it necessarily show me, but I do think that if if rates flatline here, and if you see Fed rhetoric start to go into the direction of, hey, we might actually start thinking about a 25% basis point, that to me will be the kicker. You'll see a lot of people move off the sidelines. I kind of think my personal opinion is that we're probably on the backside of the bottom of the market or probably in the upswing of the market once that consensus is there because you know... You, you can't. No, nobody all picks the bottom at the same time. Nobody really knows where the bottom is, but I do think that's the, That's the probably the sign that we're on the we're on the way up again.
0: There's a lot of data and signals for advisors to digest when considering whether they should make a new investment in commercial real estate for their clients. How can CrowdStreet Advisors help them cut through that noise?
1: Sure. You know, I, I think there's a few ways that we do that. One is probably, for example, is providing. You know the market insights that we're discussing right now um, to advisors. you know, advisors are tasked with deploying capital over a multitude of asset classes, you know, really sizing up and allocating a portfolio thoughtfully. Uh, you know that's a tough job. I think that we are in some ways have the luxury of being able to be focused on one specific asset class. Uh, we that means that we have to be intelligent and thoughtful about that asset class, but then therefore we can provide, that level of like in-market, you know, day-to-day, you know, boots on the ground level intelligence to advisors in a specific asset class. Um, when we step back and we think about vehicles like the the, the C-Read that we have, for example, now we're getting into other things, other aspects of the commercial real estate market, which that which we think fit overall into the kind of that, that greater asset deployment strategy in terms of. We're talking about a private you know real estate equity fund. That means that we're you know we have closed end funds. We're thinking about investing over multiple years, you know, not necessarily hinging on what's the next piece of news that's going to hit the market, right? We're, we're thinking about buying today and then selling five years from now and then making that assessment of that that makes sense. So kind of it's that ability to deploy capital over a period of time. Make thoughtful decisions and give that kind of like you know thoughtful insight back to advisors that we think that makes you know I guess our place in the world makes sense relative to the advisor.
0: There are a number of ways to access real estate investments for your clients: interval funds, traditional REITs, etc. But the CS advisor specifically designed the CrowdStreet REIT as a closed-end, non-traditional REIT or non-traded REIT. How do the mechanics of the fund position it to potentially thrive in current conditions?
1: I think there's a number of ways that, 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 the, that the structure of the CRE can make sense in, in the current environment. Um, the first is the, the structure of the investment committee itself. Uh, there's a five-member committee. Uh, they they include myself. I'm the chairman of the committee, but we have four other members of it. Three are, are internal. Uh, and then the, four, the fifth member is an external. Um, we're all commercial real estate You know, professionals, backgrounds, we live in the asset class every day. Um, Our external advisor is someone who comes out of a multi decade, you know, illustrious career, you know, heading up real estate for a platform such as BlackRock. And so I think the first is every member of that committee, when we discuss potential investments for the CREAT, to really weighing the merits of the current opportunity in front of us in the current context of the market and bringing kind of that breadth of multiple perspectives to the table. Um, And and also now in the the, the next level of that analysis is that because we're a closed-end fund, you know, and we have a runway in front of us in terms of an investment period, you know, we can patiently select what we think is the best next opportunity at the given point in time for the portfolio, right? There's no, there's no gun to our head, so to speak, to invest right now. The question is, is the current investment make sense in the current state of the market with all known information? Um, and you know, and then moving on from there, which I touched on a minute ago, is the fact that you know that the closed end structure and the private equity real estate structure, you know, format of that do you know work to the benefit to say that we're you know we're essentially assembling a portfolio that will invest over a period of years and thinking about exiting that portfolio later this decade, thinking about you know the liquidity inside the portfolio. One thing I think that actually works to, to our benefit right now is you know headlines kind of show right now that if you look at the publicly traded or I should say the large non publicly traded space um, that are subject to you know redemptions, redemptions have an ability sometimes to have you know capital want to flee at the bottom and pile in at the top. And so and from you know from from an investment allocation perspective, kind of know you generally want to buy low and sell high. So I think we look at it from the perspective of look we're assembling capital where we want to thoughtfully deploy it at the right time. Work through the business plan. We have kind of more control over our destiny in you know in a, in a in a scenario where there is lower actually daily liquidity in the asset. Knowing that really what we're getting to here is a multi-year investment um, allows us to kind of thoughtfully allocate capital, deploy it over time.
0: The fund intends to invest in twenty to twenty-five properties. So far, it has invested in eight. Can you describe some of the investments the fund has already made? Maybe give us an example.
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. And just to update you on the funds investments, it's actually now completed nine investments. Uh, We are currently in the process of placing our 10th investments. Uh, So of those 10 investments, just to give you just the context of what they are, seven are multifamily. One is industrial. One is what we call flex industrial, which essentially blends industrial and office uses together in one project. And then the 10th one is an opportunistic office asset located in a sunbelt market. And to give you an example of one of the assets that are in the portfolio, I think there's actually one that stands out, has a really interesting story and very indicative of the current state of the market and what we're looking for. Um, And so what this asset is, is it's a 408 unit, 2000 vintage, what we call class B plus multifamily asset. It's located in Avondale, Arizona. That's a submarket of Phoenix. And there were a number of aspects of this deal that stood out to us as CrowdStreet Advisors when we, when this deal approached us. Um, but there's a number of highlights, and so I'm going to walk through them because I think they're, they're they're very illustrative in terms of what we're looking for in the current market. Uh, the first was sponsorship. This was a plat group a deal brought to us by a platform that we have a multi-year relationship with. We've had a very positive experience with this group this group has completed over uh, or just about now 8 billion dollars worth of investments in the multifamily sector and they currently own and operate over 5000 units in the phoenix metro itself uh, so to me you begin and you end with sponsorship i can't emphasize enough how important it is to partner with a with a group uh, that has you know a tremendous amount of ground level experience in the submarket where you're, where you were investing. So we had that in this deal. Uh, second was basis. You know, in the current state of the market, with markets down from the peak, as we talked about a few minutes ago, you you want discounts. You you want to know that the current price you're paying is is below the peak pricing. And in this particular case, we were acquiring the asset for about a hundred million dollars. That equates to just roughly about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars per unit. And what stood out to us here is that a, a comparable property across the street from this particular asset traded in early 2022 for about three hundred and fifty thousand dollars per unit. So very similar type asset, same vintage, same kind of condition. Arguably, our our location had better ingress and egress, so you know maybe ours had the slight uh, nod. But this, our basis was represented a twenty eight percent discount relative to what I would say was probably peak pricing, which that asset is across the street. Phoenix as a, as a Metro has definitely cooled off uh, since the beginning of 2022, right It was one of the hottest markets in the country it is now one of the slowest markets in the country. So any deal that we would consider today in Phoenix would need to demonstrate uh you know a, 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 an appropriate level of discount and we felt like we got it here. The third thing was that there was, you know, a demonstrated what we thought an ability to add value to the asset. Um, two thousand vintage properties in the multifamily sector are interesting in the sense that you have a property where the bones can be pretty good. They have things like nine foot ceilings a lot of times. They have wide, wide walkways, large common areas, so they can live and feel mostly modern. But a two thousand vintage property is now twenty three years old, which means that its unit interiors and the common areas, well, they can feel dated. So the plan for this particular asset was to invest about $7 million into renovating the property and upgrading a lot of the units. And by doing so, ideally increasing rents over time. And so when you increase rents at each time you improve a unit, you potentially increase the income of that property. And that's kind of the name of the game and what we call value-add multifamily residential real estate. You strive to increase your income over time you try to manage your expenses. And if you're successful in achieving that, you should add value to the asset. Uh, the fourth was, you know, we've already talked about how debt is challenging to get in this current market. Assumable debt was here in this case. Uh, this particular scenario, we were assuming a loan from Fannie Mae, it was about it was just under 4% fixed interest. We added a supplemental loan to it. It brought the total blended rate to about 4.9%. And the reason I bring that number up is it's it's one, it's about 100 basis points below the current market for fixed rate agency debt. And then two, we were going into this particular asset at what we call a 5.4% cap rate. So it's essentially the NOI divided by the purchase price. And when you when the cap rate exceeds the borrowing cost, you have what's called positive leverage. And that really means from a big picture perspective that there's cash flow that can fall to the bottom line and, and create a, p- the potential for a yield. And in the current state of the market, positive leverage is rare and negative leverage is kind of like what's happening mostly out there. So anytime you can you can find your way into a deal with positive leverage, it stands out. So the fifth thing here was like just reasonable expectations. You know, we were able to go into this deal, assume no rent growth for two years. Two to three percent growth thereafter. We were able to assume that we stabilized the property at ninety-two percent occupancy when that market was really hot. It was really more like ninety-five to ninety-six. So essentially, just kind of bringing assumptions down to very reasonable levels. And then the third is just the, or I'm sorry, the sixth aspect of this thing is just the exit. And that's if if everything gets accomplished according to plan, the particular operator here believes they can sell the asset in five years from now for about the same price per unit. As the comparable property across the street traded at in early twenty two, and that's assuming that we hold it, we invest in it, we you know improve all those units, we bring it up to a level that is far superior to what did trade across the street, and we do that five years from now.
0: Are there any other notable updates on the fund?
1: Yeah, Doug, I'd say other than the fact that, you know, we're continuing to plug away and, you know, look and see some opportunities that are fitting in the current market, I'd say the other notable update is that the fund is now accessible on the iCapital platform. Um, that was a process that was conducted. It took over a year of due diligence on CrowdStreet and the CREED itself and CrowdStreet Advisors. Uh, to get there. So we're certainly pleased uh, that we've made the cut, so to speak, and that we have launched the read on their platform.
0: All right. Last one. What would you say was your outlook for the rest of 2023? Are you optimistic?
1: I would say that my outlook is currently realistic and most likely, eventually leaning optimistic, you know, in the months to year ahead. But let me unpack that a little bit. Okay, what are the realistic aspects? For starters, transaction volume is down, as we discussed. It's likely to remain depressed for the remainder of the year. Uh, debt is difficult to you know, obtain, the banking sector, the pressures are still there. All that's in place. That's going to take a while to work out. Uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily see liquidity returning to the market anytime in a meaningful way soon. You know, maybe maybe signs of light, you know, in the months ahead. but um, it's a difficult market to transact in. Uh, I think you also have to understand that for certain markets, such as the office sector, we are solidly still in the midst of price discovery from my perspective. And I believe it's fair to argue that we are still seeking the bottom in the office sector, and there's probably more pain to come before we start to see some, some signs of upside in that sector. Um, but however, there, there are some interesting aspects of the current market. For example, I mentioned a minute ago, you know, commercial real estate market is a highly inefficient market, right? Going back to that, that concept of that, if an owner needs to sell right now In a market where they're when on average they would rather not sell, but if they have to sell, maybe their debt has matured, maybe the partnership is tired and wants to move on, kind of, and and or maybe they've owned long enough that it's okay to sell. If you've owned for seven or eight years, your 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 asset values is okay even in a down market uh, relative to what it looked like in 2015. Uh, That means that that but that today that group they're going to have to accept a relatively low price. Compared to what they would have gotten a year ago and certainly two years ago. And that really means that the market is now set up to the benefit of buyers on average. And then if we if we look at that dry powder that we talked about a minute ago, knowing that it's still on the sidelines, it's kind of looking for that all-clear signal to re-engage, you know, that means that right now there's there there will be certain opportunities that are priced attractively. In my opinion, I think you get to 24 or 25 and you look back and say, yeah, there were some deals to be had in 2023, they weren't on every corner. They So they weren't abundant. Um, you had to be patient. You had to turn, turn over a lot of stone, stones, so to speak, to get there, uh, but there, there were deals. Um, and you had to figure out how to, how to finance them. And maybe that financing had to get creative. Uh, but if you can line all those things up, that's where I think that there's, you know, there's some interesting opportunities out there. Um, I do think that once we get those all clear signals, you'll see that dry powder rush in. Uh, that means that we're probably, again, I believe, well beyond the trough of the market at that point. We're solidly into the next cycle. So that realism leaning into optimism says really boils down to I do think that you know it is it, it's a challenging market, but one that will, I think highlight some interesting opportunities. You know they will be relatively unique compared to you know the previous run-up and towards the end of the cycle. Uh, they they will provide you know they're, they're going to be very one-off in nature. I think that is the market for the going-forward months. My personal thesis is that once we get into 24, we get a, a a dead outlook that looks maybe a little bit more clear to the upside. More demand starts to come in, pricing starts to resume. Probably feels like at that point more of a generally, you know, slowly bullish market at that point. Um, but I think you know, in the near term, just an interesting time to be in the market. Uh, if you're patient, you have the capital. I think you can you you can line up some interesting opportunities.
0: Ian, so much great stuff in this talk. Thanks so much for being with us today.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure to come back on the podcast. Um, I, I definitely appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Doug.
0: To learn more about CrowdStreet, please visit CrowdStreetAdvisors.com. Please follow us for timely updates on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, all at Advisorpedia. For everybody at Advisorpedia, our producer, Julia Smolin, the Power Your Vice podcast team, this is Doug Heikman.